We're going to be starting in verse 32. And in this, we're going to be taking a look at two miracles, two additional miracles that are happening in the early church. And just by way of introduction, I just want to remind us as we've been going through the book of Acts, that this is the kind of stuff that is happening all the time. You know, John says when he's recording the life of Jesus, he says, look, if, if I recorded everything that Jesus did and said, there would not be enough books in the world to contain it. And so he wrote some certain things. He wrote certain things so that people would believe that Jesus was the way. And so similarly in Acts, like you could not, you can't encapsulate this stretch, these 30 years or so, you can't just like with a few stories here and there, like really exhaustively talk about all the things that were happening. I mean, just imagine all of the people, like think about at, at Pentecost, thousands of people come to faith in Christ. Can you imagine how many stories are encapsulated or tried to, to be contained in that statement? 3,000 men, and on top of that, women and children who come to faith in Christ? Do you think the books of the world could possibly contain that? I mean, think about how many stories of life change and transformation are just represented in this room. And now multiply that. Generation after generation after generation across the globe. It's amazing. Like when we think about what are you going to do in heaven like, eternity feels like a long time. Like, not if you are so excited every time you hear the stories from people's lives and it draws you to worship Jesus more. Like, it would take us an eternity. Like, we will never exhaust all that God has done. And so that is something we have to keep in mind in Acts when it drops in and um, when Luke drops in and tells some of these stories, these are reminders of these are the things that are happening all the time. And today we have two miraculous stories. And in it, what I want us to do is kind of look at it from, from a particular angle. And I want us, um, I, I have another outline today. I've been doing better at that just so I don't get lost and, and you guys don't get lost. But um, when I was just looking at these two miracles that are actually pretty straightforward, there's not a whole lot of, of surrounding material to it. They're just pretty straightforward. They're pretty miraculous. Like, um, you know, someone's going to be raised from the dead. So that's pretty big, Right. Like I said to Robbie, I was like, man, I feel like these passages, like I don't really, I don't know how I'm going to preach this. And he goes, oh yeah, you're right. Someone being raised from the dead. That's tough. <laughs> Fair point. But still, like I'm sitting there looking at it and saying it's very straightforward. So what do, we, what do we take from this? And what do we do with this? Because we've talked about how in the book of Acts, we can see things that we wonder, why doesn't that happen today? Why aren't we seeing this happen all the time? And, and we addressed that, some of that um, several weeks ago. Um, on another passage that dealt with miracles. But today what I want to look at is there's something I think interesting about the method, like what happens here, like how these miracles actually take place. I think we see something in this text about the purpose of these miracles, like why they take place. And then we see something really powerful about the fruit of the miracles and what happens as a result of them. 
read this passage together. Acts 9, verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Tabitha had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So we see something unique here in, in the method of what is happening and how Peter goes about this. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you might notice something very familiar in these two stories. Maybe you're here, and, and if you're not, that's okay. But if you're in here, you're thinking, man, those kind of sound familiar. You might think, like, I feel like Jesus, I thought Jesus was the one that did that. I thought Jesus said that. You ever do that, like, when you quote scripture? Or like, you think, you're like, oh, yeah, I know somebody said that. I don't know if that was Peter, if that was James, if it was Jesus, if it was, like, sometimes, like, if that happens to you, don't worry, it happens to me, too. All right? And so you might be sitting there going like, wait, wait, isn't that, that's Jesus that said that. And if you're thinking that, you would be right. Because he does. Look at, look at what Peter says to this in this first one. He says, he found a man named Aeneas bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. This isn't the first time we've seen this. In John chapter 5, Jesus sees a paralyzed man and knew that he had already been there a long time. And he said to him, do you want to be healed? And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Another time, remember the, the story of the friends lowering uh, a, a man and, and a paralyzed man? And Jesus heals him, and he says, he heals him this way, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So we see 
Some striking similarities here. Peter, like Jesus, comes upon a scene. This man is paralyzed, has been paralyzed for a long time. And the way that he deals with it is he looks at him and he says, Rise, get up, make your bed. The second account is even more striking. The similarities are even more striking. The second one, as he goes to Tabitha and he's called, Peter is called there and, and they're saying like she has died. And so he goes in there and he, he sends people out and he tells her to rise. And that should sound familiar. It's when we were preaching through Mark. In Mark 5, Jairus, a, a ruler of the synagogue, pleads with Jesus to heal his daughter. But before Jesus and his disciples are able to arrive, they receive news that Jairus' daughter has died. And so Jesus goes anyway. And he finds them weeping and mourning in an upper room. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. So these similarities in this one is striking. Just like Jesus People come to find Peter. They hear that he's near and they have the situation. Tabitha has died. They go and they find him. Just like Jesus, he arrives on the scene of people mourning and weeping. And just like Jesus, he puts everybody outside. And then just like Jesus, he says, Tabitha, Arise, which that is Tabitha Kumi. Jesus said, Talitha Kumi. It's the same phrase. In fact, it's one letter difference. Tabitha, the name, Talitha meaning little girl, but it's one letter different. They say the exact same thing. Why do you think this is? Because Peter was just doing what his master showed him how to do. Peter's literally doing the same thing. It's like he's walking up there and he's like, I've seen this before. Okay, and what does Peter do in that moment? What does he draw on? Does he draw on his own strength, his own wisdom? Does he think, okay, this is the time. I know Jesus did it this way, but you know what would have been awesome is if he would have said this. He doesn't improve on anything. He doesn't try to figure out some new way to go about it. He finds himself in this incredible circumstance and he just did what Jesus did. There is so much that we overcomplicate in the Christian walk. We spend so much time kind of quibbling over some of the, the details or the finer points of faith and having debates about this. And I just submit that most of the time that we are doing that, we do that as a way to distract ourselves from the very basic things that we are called to do. 
that most of the Christian walk comes down to watching him, learning from him, and obeying him. We watch him because he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. We learn from him because he is gentle and lowly of heart. And we follow him because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Listen, as we keep pointing out, Peter is not the same man that he was before. He is a new creation. He is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He is a new person. And that new person now sees what Jesus is doing. He's been given wisdom to understand that, and he follows him. And I just think so much of when we think about like, well, how, how do I grow in my faith? How do, I, how do I feel closer to God? I just want to submit that the best answer is typically the simplest. Abide in him. Walk with him. Read God's word and see how it points back to Jesus and look at him, he's the exact imprint, and then do what he says. Do that how he does it. Watch how he interacts with people. Watch how he interacts with those who hated him and were persecuting him. Watch how he reacted to, to those who were deep, deeply entrenched in their sin. Watch how he loves his disciples. Watch how he worships God. Like Watch it and just do it. I was just talking to someone recently, and they were talking about how... Um, like we were, it, was, it was kind of this conversation of what's the best way to learn how to do something? And we have these competing um, views in, in education. Like one way of learning how to do something, to be trained to be able to do something, is to learn. To take classes, to learn the theory of things, to, to study books and to, to think about it and to understand everything, um, like to try to understand everything there is to understand about it. Like you go to law school and you read a lot about the law, you, you go to medical school, you read about all that and you, you learn about it kind of all in theory. And then the other is to do it. There's the classroom learning and then there's apprenticeship. And some cultures and some societies over the course of human history have highly valued apprenticeship and some have highly valued, highly valued the classroom. And I would say, by and large, our country tends to value more heavily the classroom environment than we do the apprenticing environment. Even though we know, practically speaking, that the apprenticeship produces way better results. Like anybody that's an electrician in here knows that you, you can't become a good electrician unless you become an apprentice. There are some states where you actually don't have to go to law school. You can just apprentice under a lawyer for a certain number of years. And so this idea of apprenticeship, this idea that, that we talk about a lot here, is this simple idea of if you want to be close to Jesus, walk with him, follow him, obey him, practice Yes, knowledge is important. Even, even somebody who believes wholeheartedly in apprenticeship is still going to teach things, 
is still going to give knowledge, is still going to give wisdom, is still going to try to provide some background information. Like, like this, is, this, this is what these charges mean. This is, this is what this organ is. Don't poke that when you're trying to do this over here. Like, that's important stuff. Don't get me wrong. You can tell my extensive medical background here. <laughs> Don't cut the wrong thing. Um, those things work in conjunction. All I'm saying, all I'm saying is that in the American church, we have been dominated by the classroom. And I think we need to take what we've learned and realize that until we put that into practice, we don't actually know it. Right? We don't actually know it yet. So learn it and then follow. So we see something else about the, the purpose of these miracles. And it's simply this. Like here's the main, the, the main point of this. The point of the miracle, the purpose of the miracle is not like it's not some kind of party trick. It's not the miracle in and of itself. It's what, or more importantly, who that miracle testifies to. So miracles in scripture and miracles that Jesus did, they are evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. That what he says is the truth. In that in that example earlier, like in, in Mark 2, where he heals the, the paralytic man, if you're familiar with that story, you might be like, oh man, you, you missed the best part. No, I didn't. Here it is. All right, in verse 10. So what's happening is this paralyzed man is there, and Jesus says, son, your, your, your sins are forgiven. And people around are going, whoa, 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 whoa. Who's this that forgives sins? And Jesus says that, that line that I just love so much, like, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and take, take your mat and go home, get up and walk? But then he says this, but that you may know, that you may know, they were like, the reason for this is that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Over and over and over, and you can't miss this in your own life or in Scripture, Jesus does the physical thing that you can see so that you will believe that he can do the much greater things that are unseen. Every time we see a miracle in Scripture, it is this idea that, yes, that was amazing. That man was, they was paralyzed for years, and now he's up and he's walking around. This man was blind since birth, and now all of a sudden he's, he can see. This person had leprosy and was outcast, and now all of a sudden, like in front of us, he's healing. And all of that is this idea that, yes, that is amazing. Yes, that is a miracle. Imagine what he can do with things that are unseen. If he can do that, with a body, imagine what he can do with your soul. If he can do that in this moment and overcoming time right here and now, imagine what he can do in eternity. Do you ever have a hard time imagining what is an eternity of glory going to be like? It's so hard for us to comprehend that we usually just give up. We usually just think like, well, I don't know, like that's just, that's just too far away. I don't, I don't even know what that would look like. 
And there's a sense in which that's true, like we, we, we can't, but, but Jesus is present with us here and does the works and the miracles that he does here with us now so that we believe that whatever he means by I go to prepare a place for you, that it must be awesome. Right? Whatever he means and whatever Paul means by his little understanding of he considers all the suffering of this world as light momentary afflictions compared to what is to come, that whatever he means by that, it must be something incredible. Right? And we keep pointing back to these things like, look, he did this here. Imagine what that means about what he can do over there. He can make a man walk. like He could forgive my sins. The question of these miracles is always who? Like, what does that mean about who? Like, Jesus is who he says he is. I mentioned this earlier, but in John 20, he talks about how Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. When Jesus calms the storms with the disciples, he stills the storm, they're terrified. Remember in Mark 4, they're terrified. They think they're going to die. And Jesus calms all of the storms. And what is their question? They are filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's the right question. Not like, hey, how did that happen? Hey, can you do it again? Who are you? And even last week, when Saul is struck blind, his response is, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Isn't that crazy? Saul's question isn't, where, where are my eyesight? Like, where did it go? Did you guys all see that? I can't see. He's not freaking out that. He's, who are you, Lord? I think this is so important because the temptation as we go through life is to try to chase these miracles and chase these experiences and always needing like a a bigger high, a bigger experience rather than letting those gifts, those miraculous things that God does, sometimes really big things. I mean, there are big miraculous stories in this room and there are small miraculous stories in this room that feel small, but they are just as miraculous. In fact, often because of the way we're wired, we think that the things that are temporary and physical are the big things and the things that are transformative and eternal are the small things. I think sometimes we just need to take a step back and go like, I don't think I'm seeing that quite right. But all of those things are meant to point us to Jesus. It is as if he's saying, oh great, you see that I did that. Imagine what else I can do. And that we would worship him. His gifts are meant to draw us closer to him, not to make us idolize the gift. And we understand that in our own lives. Like, why do you give loved ones a gift? Why do you do things for them? It's to express your love for them so they would know that you love them and that you care for them. Like, what would you think about someone who's, who's only friends with somebody else because of the gifts that they give? It's not good. Gifts are beautiful because of what they say about the giver, about that relationship, about that connection, about what they're able to do. 
And so our response to these miraculous things, when we do see them, when we see them in one another's lives, when we see them out there, is, is that it, our hearts would be drawn to worship him. That we would say, who is this? Who is man that you're mindful of? Let them serve their proper purpose to worship God. And finally, I want to look at the the fruit of the miracles. So the purpose is that they would point to Jesus and so that people would believe. The fruit is that they actually believe. The fruit actually ends up being more miracles, more changed lives, more people coming to know him. Each, each one of those situations says they, they believed. Entire city believes. I don't even know what that means. I, I don't, I honestly, like that could be every, literally every person in that town came to Christ. Or it could mean like generically, kind of like everybody. Like, I don't know, but let's just suffice it to say it's a lot. People saw this happen and they came to believe. And we have to remind ourselves, what does the Bible mean when he says believe? It's not just a flippant, interest. And it's not just that they acknowledge that God is real. We're really good at that in our culture. We just say, well, yeah, I believe in God. And all we mean by that is I acknowledge the existence of a creator or of a higher being. And usually it's I acknowledge the the likelihood or even the possibility of a higher being. And that's what we mean when we say believe, but that is not what they mean in scripture when they say believe. It's not just that God is real in some vague sense. It is that he is who he says he is and who he has shown himself to be through the incarnation, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is specific. It is a belief that he is God and that he is Lord. And when it says people um, believed, It wasn't just acknowledging his existence like some kind of head nod. It means that they left everything and they followed him. When they saw this is who he said he was, and they followed him. And when when it says people followed him, they're not just talking about like they just started attending church on, on Sundays. It means they radically altered their lives. They drove deep into community. They shared the gospel everything about their lives changed. And that's what we've seen so far in Acts, right? When people repent and they turn to Jesus, it doesn't say, and they gathered together two and a half times out of every month to sing some songs and listen to some guy ramble on. That's not what they said. They sold their possessions. They made sure nobody had any need. They saw miracles happen. They were in awe and wonder every day. That's what they meant by follow. And that followed, that following produced more stories of change and more people were drawn to believe. And that is the norm. Like the norm in the early church is God moving in his people and transforming them from the inside out, and then people responding to that and looking at it and saying, there's something different about those people. I need to know what that is. 
It's one of the reasons why I just love when Robbie told me that this morning about what's going on in the county. It just makes my heart rejoice. That's, that's what's happening. People look at that and say, how is it that we can't, like our, our repeat business, so to speak, it's a terrible way to put that, but is 10%. But yet you guys have invested in two families and both of them have asked for a second placement. Now look, I'm a math teacher's son. So I know that two out of two is not statistically significant. But it's incredibly significant to those children. And it's little by little by little because in the kingdom, small things become big things. And we believe that. And so we are faithful in the small things that he might do greater things. So this normative way that this is happening and coming about, God moving his people and others responding, we need to be expectant of it. Look at how often it says in Acts that things like more were added to their number. You know, even earlier in in verse 31, the church walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit multiplied. All the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Whenever something miraculous happens, more people follow Jesus. Like I said, sometimes it's what we would consider big miracles, and sometimes small things, like thousands of people being cut to the heart through a simple sermon. But people's lives are changing, and it is miraculous. Probably... One of my favorite testimonies, when somebody comes here, whenever, and if you're new here, just be prepared. If I talk to you, I'm going to ask you, like, well, how did you, how did you find us? Like, why, how do you find yourself here this morning? My favorite testimony is when somebody says, well, our neighbors go here, and we've just seen, like, incredible change in them, and so we wanted to check it out. Or my son is walking with the Lord and I wanted to see what it's about. My spouse has really changed and I wanted to come and see. It's the change. And that's something that, that, that all of us should be doing. Like We are all walking testimonies to that. Here's the reality in, in church ministry. If someone comes because they, they heard that the preaching was good, they don't typically stay. You shouldn't believe that so quickly, but it's, <laughs> it's very true. If they hear about the great music or the great service, they don't stick. People stick because they see the change in you. That's why they stick. Because they've been loved. They experience the presence of God among the people of God. They find a home with a family. That's what makes people stick. And it was no different 2,000 years ago. If we want to see that happen, if we want to see our church continue to grow and impact in this area, if we want to see more lives changed, for more people to experience the radical love of Jesus Christ, 
for more people to become like him, then we need to understand, and you need to understand, how critical your part is. Your transformation is a testimony to the world that Jesus exists. And I don't say that to put pressure on you because then you're like, if, if, when, when we stumble and we fall and we mess up, which we do, then we also are testifying to his grace and his mercy. As you pursue Jesus radically, you set the tone of the culture here. That when people come and they want to see, like, is this real? That they see people are radically pursuing Jesus. And we say, that's, that's normative here. As you sing loud during worship, you set the norm. We are people who sing because our Jesus moves us to sing. As you come up to receive prayer, like many of you did last weekend, you set the norm. Like we are a people who are always desperate to cry out to God and to let others cry out to God on our behalf because we need him every day. You set the norm of that. That is what we do. And as you demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, as you share your story of change, as you continue to be shaped, as you ask for forgiveness, as you demonstrate otherworldly humility, otherworldly generosity, you are telling them about this King who does miracles. You're testifying that He is who He says He is, and He does what He says He is. He does. And when that happens, people will come and see. And we need to expect that and not be surprised when that happens. I love it when somebody says, when somebody says, like, oh, I've been invited for like this person actually came. I'm like, what'd you expect? Like, like be excited. By all means, be excited. Rejoice in that. Don't be shocked. And when that happens, by the way, church, we need to take that seriously. Do you know how much courage, how how many obstacles people have to overcome to to come here for the first time? It can be really scary. And, And many of you have that story. You know what that was like. So as people do come in, we welcome them. Think about this. Your father has brought them here. Like they are guests in your father's house. Everything you do tells them something about your father. So as you introduce yourself to visitors even if it's the fifth time you've introduced yourself to them and you just realized, oops, I just did that again. Then you ask for forgiveness, right? And in humility, you just say, like, I just want to make sure you know you're welcome. You tell them about the King Jesus who welcomes the stranger, right? As you pray for someone, you tell them about a King who has compassion on his people, as you invite people over for dinner and out, or out for coffee, you, you tell them, about a king who sits and and listens to his people. As you bring people a meal, you're telling them about a king who provides for their every need. 
as you offer to read the Bible with someone, you're telling them about a, a king who can be truly known and how exciting it is to do that. If we expect great things, if people see as we're doing that that we are pursuing Jesus with the same childlike faith and wonder, then that says something about our God who is constantly teaching us and constantly transforming us and has mercies that are new every morning. So what is your response going to be? Many of you, I'm looking around the room, many, if not most of you right now, I, like, I'm, I'm just so excited about looking around and seeing all the stories. Like all the transformation that we've gotten to see, like, like what are you going to do with that? One temptation, by the way, is to, to, to explain it away as like coincidence or just kind of natural flow of life. Told, I've told stories before about the, the first guy, a good friend of mine who came to Christ in, in our church plant out in Colorado and how he just radically changed. Started sharing the gospel with people, started quoting scripture when he didn't know any scripture. Like just like radical transformation in his life. And one of the things about him was his personality. He was prone to outbursts of anger. He's a very intense and passionate guy, and he was prone to kind of like lose it sometimes. At his kids, at his wife, his, you know, whoever. But in Christ, as he was being transformed, we saw him before our very, very eyes become softened. He was still intense, but his intensity stopped being self-centered and self-motivated and started being poured into an intense love for others and compassion for others. We saw him becoming more kind and more generous and more loving. He stopped kind of having these outbursts of anger. And one time he was struggling with his faith. And I was like, man, look at your life. Look at how much you've changed. Don't you see that you've changed in this way? Like you've softened. You've become more patient. Like you don't scream at people anymore. And you know what he said? He said, I, I, I think I'm just getting older. I'm just getting more mature. I was like, dude, you are not getting more mature. Let me tell you that. But no, I was just like, I'm like, really? I couldn't believe that all this miraculous change, we'd seen him, everybody saw it. And he's like, I just think that's just the normal process of just getting wiser and older. And the Holy Spirit just like gave me this thing. I said, hey, tell me about your dad. Tell me what your dad's like. Honestly, I didn't know. I was just curious. He goes, oh, he's an angry old cuss. Oh, really? Yeah, he just, yeah. And he starts describing who he was before Christ. And I said, he hasn't mellowed with his old age? No, no, he's gotten grumpier. Oh, okay. So maybe this wasn't just the natural flow of, of life. I was like, listen, you've lived one way for nearly 40 years. In the last few months, you have completely changed. If you don't see the miraculous work of God, play in you. I, I don't know what to tell you. And listen, I, I'm telling you, the enemy will convince you that the change you see in yourself is due to other factors. That the change you see in other people, it's not like fully there. It's like maybe just a show. Because you'll see them mess up and you're like, ah, no, that's who they really are. Like, he will tell you that Jesus isn't who he says he is and he doesn't do what he says he does but we know better. 
We know better. We know when somebody does mess up and they sin against us, they fall back into forgetting who they really are in Christ, that we have grace and compassion for them. And we say, hey, brother, that's not who you are anymore. Rather than saying, ah, I knew it. Knew you didn't change. We give lots of space and we're patient with that and we celebrate what Jesus is doing. Because we know the truth, that Jesus saves, that he makes all things new that he gives us a family, forms us as a family, and that he's preparing an inheritance for us. And if we believe, then we need to respond and follow him. And when you see him do things in scripture, go and do likewise. I love what happens in that story in John 5, calling back to that one where he heals the paralyzed man. It's so great. The, the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. They said that to a guy who had been paralyzed for years. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And he answers them, the man who healed me, that dude said, take up your bed and walk. What's implied there is I'm going to listen to him. Right? This is, do you see the similarities there? Like when Peter and John go before the council and they're like, hey, you can't speak in this name. They're like, you cannot speak in the name of Jesus. And they're like, well, if you think we should obey you or God, like we'll let you decide. But we're going to obey God. And that's what a life looks like when we're just consumed by him and we see him working in our lives. Like that's what fills us with boldness and confidence. And we still are able to have compassion on people and we're just excited about it. And we're like, yeah, yeah, I get that this may look weird, but I'm doing with the guy who has completely transformed my life, what he tells me to do. I'm going with him. It's not just him. It's all of them. The blind man who is healed. Saul who came face to face with Jesus. And there is humility in all of them. There's a gentleness in all of them. They're not trash talking. Right? They're not getting into these heated arguments. They have been changed. And they have this quiet boldness and confidence because they have seen Jesus. They have been shown mercy and they cannot help themselves. So let what he is doing in you just flow out of you. And then invite others to come and see and welcome them to your father's house. I, I just have been so encouraged, church, by what God has done in this family. I, when I was out teaching in Colorado, the Sunday in between, I went to a, a church of a friend of mine. It was a big church, great church, like incredible things happening. People were super friendly. In fact, some of, our, um, some of the people that were here that moved out there like go to that church now. And so actually I got to see a bunch of people that, that I knew from back here, which was kind of ironic. And like we're there, we're worshiping, and it's just a beautiful church. I love that church family. And while I'm sitting there and worshiping, and it's incredible worship time, and people are singing, and the music is great, and the preaching is great, the whole time I got this pit in my stomach I'm just thinking, I miss my church family. I miss my church family. I want to be in my church. Not because this church is bad at all. The church is great. But I missed us. And this morning, I was thanking God for what I have seen here, what he has given me the grace to be able to see. And this passage came to mind. It's from John, and this is what I'm closing with. Early in John's account, Jesus calls Philip um, to follow him. This is the story of Philip and Nathaniel. Philip comes and follows him. He, Philip then goes to Nathaniel and says, we found him. When Moses talked about like the Messiah, we found him. And, and Nathaniel doubts. And Philip says, come and see. And Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you, or 
I should go back earlier. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael says to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. Church, I believe it. I see something special happening here. Seeing who people coming and finding life. See people getting baptized. See people giving up their time to rally around foster families in the community. We see people volunteering in the schools or in CASA. We see people like talking about like in, in, the, in the schools of people like bonding together and starting to share the gospel in there. We see these things happening. And what, I, what came to my mind this morning was, was Jesus saying, oh, you're encouraged by that? Like you're going to see greater things than these. is a gift of the Spirit, and I believe we will see greater things. So invite others to be a part of it, to come and see. They will. And let what you see drive you to worship God more deeply. Let's pray. Father God, we, we see the works of your hands. And for some of us, even as, as we're remembering, God, back decades of your faithfulness in our own lives, and we look back centuries of your faithfulness and millennia of your faithfulness. And we tell those stories and those stories of those miracles that happen are meant to stir our heart and our affections for you, that we would believe you when you say you are the way, the truth, and the life. So Lord, I pray that we would see that and that we would, just, we would follow you. God, help us to recapture some of the simplicity of our faith, that we watch you, we learn from you, we follow you. And Lord, help us to rejoice at the miracles that we see around us. And let us, God, give us boldness and confidence to invite other people that we love and we care about. And God, and I pray the people who are here, maybe they're here this morning and they were invited by somebody, I pray that they would know that is because they are loved. we are one blind beggar telling another where to find bread. That we are people, people who once were not a people, but have been made a family by you. That we were once dead in our sin with no hope, but you brought us to life. You said to each one of us. You said, Jay, Kumi. Rise. Get up. Leave the sin and the past behind you. I'm making all things new. Let us be walking testimonies to that, that the world might look and say there's something there that they would come and see and they would seek and they would find. 
for your glory and our joy. Amen.